So we've developed, uh, devoted at least six quite solid sessions to working through Galatians, uh, which is a letter full of complexities, but it has a clear, insistent call through, throughout it uh, to a radical commitment to Christ alone. John Barclay, who's a New Testament scholar in Durham, I think he's, he's um, I think he's where he's based now, uh, says this of Galatians in a book he wrote on grace. He says, this, this letter has repeatedly gripped the imagination of Christian radicals for a reason. This letter has repeatedly gripped the imagination of Christian radicals for a reason. It realigns all reality to the singular event of Christ and the gift that creates and grants the only worth that counts. This letter has repeatedly gripped the imagination of Christian radicals for a reason. It realigns all reality to the singular event of Christ and the gift that creates and grants the only worth that counts. So it's a short letter. I mean, um, it's only six chapters, but it contains a wealth of heavyweight and historically uh, quite contested big ideas, including things like justification by faith, grace and works, uh, substitutionary atonement, and other big uh, theological ideas. Throughout the, um, the presentations, I've tried to relate Paul's argument to this, the historical circumstances that he was addressing in his own day, rather than trying to, as a first port of call, apply it to our situation. Uh, New Testament scholars always say of Paul's epistles that they are occasional compositions. In other words, they're addressed to particular occasions or circumstances in the community that he's writing to. He never penned abstract theology for its own sake. He was always applying the gospel to real-life pastoral problems confronting flesh-and-blood communities in the first century, which means that the more we can know about the original recipients and the more we can know about Paul's aims in writing, the better place we are to begin to discern what this might have to say to us in very different circumstances. So the kinds of uh, metaphors that people use is reading Paul's letters is like reading somebody else's mail. It's not written to us, it's written to somebody else. Or Gordon Fee talks about, it's like overhearing one end of a telephone conversation and trying to guess what's been said on the other end of the, of the conversation. Uh, sometimes called mirror reading, trying to work out what it is in Paul's response is mirroring what was going on in the first, um, the first communities. So the occasion in Galatia seems pretty clear. These were small house churches, perhaps just two or three, that Paul had previously planted and nurtured. Uh, they were made up of predominantly Gentile converts, uh, perhaps they had been associated with a synagogue first, that was quite common, so-called God-fearers, but they were Gentile uh, in ethnicity. And they were now falling prey to the influence of outside visitors from the conservative, the most conservative wing of the Jerusalem church, who were attempting to frustrate Paul's mission. How were they trying to frustrate Paul's mission? By insisting that Gentiles needed to be circumcised, 
and to obey the full demands of the Torah in order to truly belong to the Messianic community. So I'm sure they said, well, faith in Christ is important, but that's not enough. That's just the beginning. Now you must add obedience to the full commandments of the Torah, including Sabbath observance and festival laws and food laws and circumcision, of course. And you can just imagine the sort of things that they were saying and why it would have been so persuasive. If Gentiles want to be followers of Israel's Messiah, and we're glad that they do because our prophets have talked about the day when all the nations would come uh, and and worship Israel's God. If they want to be uh, followers of Israel's Messiah, then surely they must follow Israel's law. After all, the Messiah followed Israel's law. If they want to belong to God's people as children of Abraham, then Surely they have to abide by the terms of the covenant with Abraham, whose everlasting sign was circumcision. So I suggested, I think, in the first talk that maybe they, one way to think about it sort of sociologically is they saw the Jesus movement or the Christ movement as a kind of reform movement within Judaism, a Judaism that was still defined by commitment to the Torah as the essential boundary marker, as it always had been. Paul, however, saw the movement in much more revolutionary terms, based on this unique event that has shifted the very structures of the cosmos, uh, displayed in the resurrection of Christ, and inaugurating a new stage in the history of creation, that creation moved onto this new, uh, uh, this new phase of its, of its history, I guess. And part of that had been the birthing of a new trans-ethnic community that transcended all previous norms of belonging and all previous standards of worth. These were now being transcended uh, by this new reality. So for Paul, the issue was not just one of legitimate theological diversity on sort of secondary theological issues. I was trying to think of the, the word that's used to describe this debate about this sort of secondary matters. For Paul, this went to the very heart of the gospel, this debate. It went to the very reason for Christ's incarnation, his death and resurrection. It went to the very heart of what he calls twice the truth of the gospel. And I guess if you wanted to put that truth of the gospel in a kind of propositional uh, form, it would be that we are accepted by God solely on the basis of faith in Christ's redemptive work. And nothing else, nothing else must serve as the basis for Christian identity, for Christian hope, and Christian belonging. And Paul absolutely refuses to compromise on this basic truth against those who, as he thought, were perverting the gospel uh, or twisting the gospel by adding law-keeping to the package. So I think I suggested in one of the talks that the falseness of Paul's opponents in his mind why they were so wrong about this and why he saw them as such a malign influence uh, probably lay in two particular uh, areas um, in particular. On the one hand, they were failing to recognise, Paul thought, the sole sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection for restoring humanity to God. The sole sufficiency of what Christ had achieved. They thought that Christ's achievement needed to be supplemented by certain God-given and actually biblically ordained, inscribed cultural and religious practices. But for Paul, if that was the case, if something else needed to be added to the 
uh, to the picture of what Christ has achieved, then as Paul saw it, that meant that Christ's role was secondary and his death was actually meaningless. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So they failed to recognize the sole sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection for the redemption of creation. And on the other hand, they failed to recognize the radical personal and social implications of belonging to Christ solely on the basis of faith. They remained wedded to the idea of Jewish distinction and all the existing social and religious norms that the Jewish law contained. These remained still essential. But for Paul, continuing to tie human worth and value and dignity and meaning to some secondary human quality, whether it's ethnicity or class or gender or religious piety uh, or religious election even, or any other measure, is both socially exclusionary towards those who don't have those qualities, it inevitably divides the group into us and them, and often it has a crippling impact on people's sense of worth and sense of confidence, uh, inducing a sense of not measuring up to this requirement that is um, is given uh, centrality. And Paul is adamant that no human distinction, either inborn or achieved, no human distinction must ever be allowed to become a major source of identity or status or ground of belonging within the church. Nothing beyond Christ. And, uh, you know, for Paul, this this quite staggering uh, egalitarianism, if you like, or inclusivism, stemmed from the logic of his own experience. I mean, this is the thing that really moved Paul into this new territory. Everything changed for Paul on the Damascus Road. He went from being a violent defender of Israel's exclusiveness based on an almost fanatical devotion to the Torah to being a radical defender of the Gentile outsider and their right to benefit from everything God has promised to Abraham as Gentiles. I mean, I I can't imagine a more dramatic shift in anybody's experience to go from being somebody who, who, who murdered those who uh, he thought were defecting from the law to being one who actually championed those that he previously saw as the threat uh, to Israel's covenant. So Paul's radicalism, I think, is just breathtaking. And sometimes he stood in a minority of one, uh, such as that Antioch in Galatians 2, where he went toe-to-toe with Peter and even Barnabas, uh, who had worked with Paul through his life. Even Barnabas, who wavered on this issue. But Paul stood his ground. So, I mean, I've taught Pauline theology for many years. Uh, So none of this is entirely new to me, although I've never actually taught my way through Galatians before. I have uh, taught my way through Romans, which is probably why I kept referring to Romans 7. (laughs) Um, but after years of neglect over the last uh, seven or eight years due to my restorative justice work, um, going back to this stuff, you know, it had a real impact on me. Um, and the, there are a number of things that stood out for me in a, in a fresh way. And I just want to, 
identify some of those things, then we'll, we'll throw it open. I think the first thing that had a major impact on me was, again, Paul's courage and his quite astonishing radicalism. Now, people often say, and I had people say this to me when I've told them that we're actually doing a series on Galatians, I, at least two people say to me, oh, I really struggle with Paul. And when people say they really struggle with Paul, they struggle with him because they see him in terms of his more restrictive teaching on gender, sex, and marriage. Uh, and maybe slavery, although people aren't so alert to that here. And so they struggle with Paul because they see him as a, this kind of foreboding conservative breathing down their necks. But, you know, it's not Paul's alleged social conservatism, and we do have to deal with those texts, but it's not his conservatism that should be so troubling. It's his radicalism. That's what should be so troubling for us. His social and theological radicalism because he really um, is, is way ahead of, of most places that um, I think the Christian community has dared to go. So that came through. A second thing that came through to me was, I mean, clarifying, and I use this phrase in one of the talks, the dual reference in Paul's talk about faith in Christ and justification. There's been a, uh, quite a vigorous debate over the last uh, 10, 15 years um, about whether Paul speaks of the faith of Jesus himself. So there's this phrase, the faith of Christ, <coughs> Uh, could be translated as faith in Christ or the faith of Christ, a subjective you know, Christ's own faith or our faith in Christ. And most of our translations go with the objective re rendering, which is our faith in Christ. But many have argued, and I've always been persuaded by them, that Paul also speaks of the faith of Jesus himself, of Christ's own faith. Uh, and this, again, came through to me quite um, compellingly when I was preparing for these talks, because I saw again that the reason why our faith is so critical to reconciliation with God or justification, I mean, why not something else? Why not hair colour or, you know, height or some other quality? Why is it faith? You know, why not sort of, I don't know, fluency or, or, or education? Why, what is about faith that is so important? It's not only because faith is uh, potentially open to everybody, has a universal application because we all live by faith at some level, but also because faith, our faith echoes and is enabled by the faith of Christ himself, that Christ, Christ lived a life of perfect faithfulness to God, uh, uh, supremely demonstrated in his obedience to death on the cross. And we are drawn into that faith and participate in that faith. We echo and reflect and are enabled to share in that faith by what he's achieved. Now, that may sound a pretty abstract point, but I think it does have implications for how we commend Christian faith to others, if we ever get the chance to do this. Um, because it, it kind of shifts the redemptive moment, if you like, from what we need to do in order to be saved or to be justified. What do we need to do? We need to have faith. It shifts the focus from that to what Christ has achieved through his faithfulness to God. And the invitation is for us to participate in that, to be drawn into that. Uh, and it's not about us, you know, the, I mean, this almost the way we talk about faith and works is that it's not only works of the law, it's the work of faith. It's just a different way of having to do something that God's going to tick off the list. 
But I think it's, it's more profound than that. It's been invited to participate in the benefits of the faithfulness that Christ himself has, you know, has, has displayed. I think the third and biggest impact on me uh, from working on this epistle has been Paul's emphasis on freedom and his emphasis on life in the Spirit. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So Paul sees the purpose of Christ's self-giving death as setting us free from the present evil age. He sees the human condition as one of enslavement to sort of malignant cosmic powers, you know, sin, death, flesh. We talked a lot about flesh last time. And God's redemptive act is being one of liberation, not just forgiveness. Paul hardly ever speaks about being forgiven. He does, but it's not one of his primary categories. But he talks all the time about being set free. And for Paul, looking back, he saw life under the Torah. And this is all retrospective. He never saw this at the time. But looking back, he saw life under the Torah as just another example of enslavement to malignant uh, enslavement to these uh, these these powers of um, of sin and death. I mean, shock horror for a Jew to hear that. And he insisted on a law-free ethic for Christian living, which means instead of conforming our life to the 613 requirements of the Torah, we must conform them, our lives, to the person and example of Christ, empowered by his indwelling spirit. For Paul, you cannot do both. You cannot be obligated to live according to the law and be conformed to Christ. So this emphasis on freedom from the law, which I think you know, I've only partially been able to understand, but does raise a lot of sort of so what questions for me anyway. One is, uh, do we actually feel free from the things that oppress and restrict us? I asked this in my master's class in Auckland at one point. I said, let's go around and have a circle <laughs> Do you feel free? I mean, um, it's a pretty cheeky question. But if we are set free, how do we experience that free freedom? Or again, do we always read Scripture in light of Christ? Or do we still read Scripture as a list of laws and commandments of thou shalt and thou shalt not? Remember one time I talked about the, the idea years ago that when we read especially the Old Testament, we should never apply it to any situation today without first asking you know, what difference does Jesus make to this, to this uh, story or this set of requirements. So is that what we do? Now, historically, I think it's true to say that most Christian traditions, when they've tried to make sense of this idea of being set free from the law and Paul, what they've tended to do is say, well, what that actually means is we're set free from the ritual parts of the law and from the civil parts of the law, the parts that governed Israel's collective life, but not from the moral parts of the law. So they divide it all into these three categories and they say, we're set free from the ritual law, you know, circumcision, sacrifice, uh, and so on. We're set free from the, the laws that governed the way that Israel functioned as a nation. 
but not the moral laws. They remain obligatory, and sometimes that's conflated with the Ten Commandments. Problem is that Paul seems to make this law-free idea apply to the entire Torah. He still appeals to the Old Testament in his teaching when he's instructing his community about how to live. He will quite often quote a text from, you know, from Scripture, <clears throat> but never as set-in-stone legislation. It's always Christ and the Spirit, not the law and works of the law. They occupy central stage, centre of the stage when it comes to moral reasoning. It's always about what does this look like against the template of Christ and the Spirit, not how does this, you know, how does this line up <coughs> with the moral teaching of, of the Torah. So, question to me, how does a law-based ethic still emerge in our own lives? I mean, how are we still captive to this, this way of thinking and, and living? What does freedom look like in our lives? And a related question concerns the experience of the Spirit in our personal lives and in our communal lives. Because while Paul drives the law off centre stage and into the wings, I use that idea of you know, this play going on, and up until this, up until Christ came along, it seemed that the central protagonist was, was co the covenant with Israel and the law. And suddenly that moves off back into the wings and the stage is left empty for a moment. Uh, when he does that, when he sort of pushes the law back, he doesn't leave the rest of the play to mere subjectivism and total relativism. It's not just make it up as you go along. You know, be done with that and just, just sort of um, just do your best. Instead, the law's role is replaced by the guidance and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit operating within the community of faith. So the question is, well, how does that work in practice? How does that actually work in practice for the law to guide the community in terms of, of um, deciding the way it should live? Or to use a term that's much favoured amongst Anabaptists, where's the hermeneutical community? I mean, it's a great idea, but have you ever seen one in work? <laughs> Uh, where is a community that actually does this kind of work um, on, on issues? Which brings me to, to the last point. I guess the final big idea that came to my mind when I thought about the series was both the revolutionary nature of Galatians 3.28, which you talked about last time, was it? And also its practical utility its usefulness for navigating controversial ideas. So here's the text. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now that is certainly a revolutionary statement. But it also occurred to me it also offers quite a practical framework for trying to discuss the issues that divide us around, say, to take the issues of our day around sexuality, around gender fluidity, around cultural identity, uh, around you know, Trumpian politics. I mean, whatever these issues are that the church gets... Um, you know, gets consumed by trying to work out its position on. 
maybe this text, as well as you know, being quite a you know quite a radical invitation to to an inclusive community, maybe it also offers us a way of beginning to discuss those issues uh, in a way that really is safe. If we took this as a way of framing our conversation around issues that are so divisive, it seems to me that if we actually took seriously what it says, then we create a really safe space to have these conversations. Why do I say safe? It's safe because the source of belonging is not at stake. You all belong to Christ regardless of what you think. You know, having sort of worked in the evangelical environment, one of the things that struck me very strongly is that when you start to say things that evangelicals are not used to, the first thing they do is question whether you are truly an evangelical. So the, the first issue is, do you really belong? And that's what makes these debates so so difficult because people don't just feel it's trying to, you know, trying to get their heads straight around an issue. They feel that somehow they themselves are going to be excluded by their views. Well, if you take this text seriously, then we belong. If we are, if we are connected with Christ sincerely, then we, we, we belong. It provides a source of identity as well. Well, the source of identity is clear because for Paul, race, class, gender, sexuality, politics must never be seen as a primary source of unity or, 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 or identity. The only source of identity that unites us is our solidarity in Christ. So it's safe because our sense of identity is not at stake. And it's safe because it offers us, I think, a way of evaluating the behaviours or practices or views that we are debating. How, you know, how do we evaluate the views that take something like, I don't know, same-sex marriage. That's been um, recently uh, very divisive. And you think, well, you know, how do we evaluate this as a community of faith? Well, we evaluate by saying, does it clothe us in Christ? Does it reflect Jesus? Now, that's easy to say, and of course the answer is not going to be always easy to to identify, but at least that's the thing that we're looking for, to how much are we reflecting Christ in these sorts of ways of living? And then that's when, I guess, the Spirit is required to lead us into a faithful response to issues that you know are not by any means clear to us. So, <clears throat> I am Popo, and this is my picture. <laughs> uh, this is the things that stood out for me. The, the radicalism of Paul's gospel, this dual reference of faith which highlights Christ's initiative and Christ's grace above anything that we have to do. Uh, the call to freedom and to dependence on the life of the, and leading of the Spirit. And the kind of disciplined hospitality that's outlined in Galatians 3.28. It's hospitality, but it's hospitality under the discipline of being a community that's connected to Christ. So, so I, 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 I've put my third stone... <coughs> I have these three signs that I've given them by somebody. We used faith last time. We used, no, used love last time. We used faith before. I brought the one on a hope.
And I thought we could just do a quick round. I don't want the whole thing to be a, 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 a sort of circle-bound conversation. But just a quick round of, you know, is there anything, or not, that over these last uh, few months when we've been talking about Galatians and, and the way that Paul um, presents the gospel in Galatians, is there anything that has really particularly engaged your thinking? Is there anything about it that you felt, you've actually thought about a second time um, on the bus to work in the morning? So is anybody who would like to start? Because, and you, you feel free to, to pass, but um, it would just be interesting to get some of the ideas onto the table, then we can just have a, a conversation about them. Yeah. 